Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. Mark Andreessen from A16Z famously proclaimed a decade ago that software is eating the world. His prophecy has proved prescient. Cloud computing enabled the rapid, cost-effective deployment of software, startups flourished, and venture capital returns have been phenomenal. Venture capital is a fascinating investment area whose many days in the sun shine brightest this year. Institutional portfolios with large venture allocations soared to their best year in history. And yet, parts of venture are unique in being both efficient and unactionable. Many believe that Sequoia or Benchmark will produce returns at the top of the pack, but there's not much action anyone can take to participate. This miniseries explores the industry, focusing on some favorites of institutional investors who are still investable to those in the loop. Each has a great differentiated story to share and something to prove. That said, this field moves quickly, so as the disclaimer goes, Past accessibility is not a guarantee of future capacity. My guest on the ninth episode of Venture is Eating the Investment World is Annie Lamont, a co-founder and managing partner of Oak HCFT, a $3 billion venture capital firm investing across stages in tech-enabled companies in healthcare and financial services. Annie is a legend in the industry. 
Across her 40 years in venture capital, she's been featured on the Forbes Midas list, the Top 100 Venture Capitalist Rankings, and received the Healthcare Private Equity Association's Lifetime Achievement Award. Our conversation covers Annie's beginnings in venture capital, inflection points in the industry, lessons learned, and spinning out to start her own firm. We then turn to her investment process, evaluating CEOs, competitive environment, and opportunities in healthcare and fintech. We close with her perspective on women in the industry and her unique experience as the first lady of the state of Connecticut. Ventures Eating the Investment World is brought to you by Omni. Omni helps private capital investors track and analyze individual deals while providing comprehensive financial and legal insights across their portfolio. It houses the largest database of investment transactions in the private markets extracted directly from executed agreements, including the legal terms, co-investor details, liquidity preferences, valuations, and round sizes. With that information, investors can make faster investment decisions, benchmark deal terms, understand market trends, and enhance portfolio analytics. Omni's clients include leading venture funds, corporate venture groups, family offices, and endowments, including a number of past guests on the show. You can learn more at omni.fund. That's A-U-M-N-I dot fund. Please enjoy my conversation with Annie Lamont in the ninth episode of Venture is Eating the Investment World. Annie, great to see you. Great to see you, Ted. After four decades in this business, take me back to how you first got started. Well, that's, that is an easy story. So I got out of Stanford at the time that Silicon Valley was exploding. It was really the beginning of the whole tech era. And a friend introduced me to this job at a venture capital investment bank boutique that happened to be the leading one, Hambright and Quist in San Francisco. Those were the days when you just interviewed and somebody gave you an offer that afternoon <laughs> and you started the next day. And the first three months I was there, we took Genentech Public. We took Apple Public. I carried Steve Jobs' bags on the Apple IPO roadshow. And I was just exposed to the two of the most amazing entrepreneurs ever. And I fell in love. I just thought, this is what I want to do. I want to be around these creative people that are about transforming the world and that became my life's mission. How did that take you from that into venture capital so early on? Well, a year and a half into having a job at H&Q, I just said to everybody that I knew, like, I want to be a venture capitalist. And there weren't many of them out there. And nobody was hiring associates then or young 24-year-olds at that point. But luckily, a sliding door story where I walked into an elevator, ran into an old friend from Stanford that was working at NEA. Went out for a glass of wine, told him that I wanted to be a VC, and the next day he happened to call the founder of Oak about a Victoria's Secrets magazine that he wanted him to fund with him. And of course, the founder of Oak said, we only do tech, we're not interested in magazines, but I'm looking for a research associate. And three weeks later, I moved to Westport, Connecticut from San Francisco. What was the venture capital industry like in the 80s? Collaborative, friendly, small. It was not only small, though, in terms of VCs, it was small in terms of opportunities. There just weren't that many companies and great entrepreneurs at that point. And I knew, I think in 1983, there were 300 disk drive companies that were all trying to get funded. I mean, we had funded Seagate and Fund One at Oak Investment Partners and had one of the great companies, but I wasn't that interested in investing in disk drive companies. <laughs> and there was only one public software company at that point. So... It's one of the reasons I actually identified healthcare and life sciences and biotech as an area that I wanted to specialize in and lead for Oak. And that really established and launched my career. So what was that spark that got you into it? You kind of know what gets you excited in the morning. And I did like software, but there weren't that many great opportunities to look at and to invest in. And the biotech industry was beginning to take off. The year I joined Oak, we founded Genzyme. So I had exposure to that. And it just I realized I got really excited about the science and what it could do and its transformative nature. What did you see even back then being on the East Coast when West Coast Silicon Valley was just getting going? 
I certainly saw more of a plane than any of my West Coast brethren. (laughs) (laughs) So traveled a lot, but there was Boston was an active community. Genzyme was obviously in Cambridge. And I certainly had to travel more, but I actually loved being outside of Silicon Valley because I think it over my career has made us think differently. We aren't stuck in groupthink and have been invested all over the country and now globally. What was an early investment that you just always remember sticks in your mind? Sure. Well, they're all mentioned too, because one was a success and one was a failure. So SoftSwitch ended up being bought by Lotus123 and then by IBM. And that actually was the first days of intra email. Essentially, it was corporate email. And so that was a fun one because that was all the way back to 83 in terms of when you think about that was really the days before ubiquitous internet email. And then the other one was actually a competitor market vision to Bloomberg. So I wish I'd been in Bloomberg, but instead we were in market vision, which didn't make it. What was the story of market vision? Well, I think, you know, it was an entrepreneur that became obsessed with the hardware and the graphics and not the software and the business model. And Bloomberg was so brilliant around the business model and obviously the software. At that age, how did you learn how to be good at this? Well, it is an apprentice business. You do learn from the people, you know, I was working with people who've been in the business for over a decade at that point, and there weren't that many people. The pace was slower, so you had time to actually study things. I think the most valuable advice I got was from Jerry Gallagher, who was our retail partner and had been involved with many of the great Whole Foods and PetSmart and Office Depot and had been involved with many great stories. And he said to me about five years into my career, I don't think that you're focusing enough on the quality of the CEO. And I was more focused on the maybe the idea and the market opportunity. And I think he was absolutely right. And it seems so simple. But for me, it's always, it's all about people. And I think developing, and the reality is, I think it's all about judging the people and the person leading the effort. What does that mean on the margin? Not focusing enough on the CEO. Like, What did that mean to you at the time? It meant that CEO comes first. Everything is about that CEO. And don't ever compromise. Don't get excited. You, even with financials that may look good, if it's far enough along to have them. Just be looking at the individual, start with the ethics, and go to just the quality of the team, obviously, that they can attract. I mean, you have to be a Pied Piper to really be a great entrepreneur and a great leader. People have to want to come work for you, and you have to be secure enough so that you want people that are even better than you and smarter than you to work for you. Somehow we got to jump from then to today, and maybe the way to do that is to ask about what were the inflection point. So you started in the 80s. It was quiet. There weren't that many people. Totally different story today. If you look back, how do you map out what those couple decades have been like? The internet mania, period 98, 99, 2000, that was an education itself. Beginning of the internet, beginning of e-commerce, fascinating period. If we hadn't had a mania, we wouldn't have funded things like Google and Amazon, some of the great companies of today. But you also learned what business models worked and what didn't. And I feel like we're hitting a second mania of the last couple of years, but with many more great entrepreneurs and business models and companies. So at that time, what I learned was in 2000, 2001, when there was a retrenchment, when we felt like the opportunity set wasn't there, it made me think more about the different sectors that I was in, what I would be doing. Frankly, I had vectored away from life sciences because you could see by 99, 2000 that there were 3,000 public biotech companies and only five approved products. You could see that the science wasn't there yet and that it wasn't, people just assumed that because you were working with molecular biology, that these products would work better, that the trials would go faster than those with chemistry. And it It just wasn't true. So there ended up being like a 10-year dry period between 2000 and 2010. There were very few great biotech companies created, taken public. So I actually stepped away in 99-2000 from life sciences and made it a mission. Frankly, the the crash gave us time to rethink, repot. And I did two things. One became about cloud, became about cloud and doing software And our mission became about lowering cost in healthcare, improving quality, improving the consumer experience. And that became our mantra. So within healthcare. 
within healthcare, all software and services. So Athena Health was our first. We led that deal. We were the largest investor in 2000. But I also started a fintech practice because I, you know, to keep yourself fresh, intellectual curiosity. If you looked at business models that were working, areas that people weren't yet, just like in when I was early in biotech, I just felt like nobody was doing fintech. People didn't even know what the, I had to tell people what the word meant. Very few companies in the sector, but incredible business models. If you think about payments, what's happened in the conversion of B2C payments and now B2B payments. And so we really mostly focused on payments at that time. And as we established a fintech practice in 2002. So sometimes these manies and then the breakage ends up giving you time to rethink and vector into different directions. So it's interesting because a lot of people then think about 2008 as the next point. And the reality is 2008 was problematic for public markets. It was problematic because people had to retrench in terms of how much they could invest. Endowments were decimated. People didn't have as much money to invest, but it actually reset valuations. And in the micro markets that we were investing in, it didn't affect the opportunity there at all. It was already a fintech, the digitization of healthcare, all those things were already beginning. And so it didn't change our opportunity set, but it reset so we could actually invest in great valuations. So it was actually a wonderful time period. And the last 20 years have been an incredible time period to invest in the two sectors that we're in. So I'm curious in that you spent 20 years basically just focused on healthcare and it, with such a CEO person focused approach, how did it feel to reset almost like your network? I think you have to be humble. Right, it takes some humility, and I think a lot of people don't want to do that. They're they're king of life sciences, or they're king of a particular sector they're in. And the reality is, is if you're excited about learning, you want to learn something new, creating fintech, creating a tech-enabled solutions and services area in healthcare. It just meant you were meeting a lot of new people, you were asking a lot of questions, you weren't the smartest person in the room, and you have to be willing to do that. I think that is the core of being a successful investor. As you come out of the crisis a couple of years later, you decide to spin out. Walk me through that whole thought process. One thing that happened, and I have to give Andreessen some credit for them, their model in terms of 2007, eight, about the same time as the crash. It was interesting. And more money came into the industry. We became more of a service industry. And I was living in a partnership where fintech and healthcare was doing very well. Tech was struggling more. And people didn't want to change culturally. They didn't want to change to a service model. They didn't want to invest in the platform. And we could just see that the fintech and healthcare team, uh, Andrew Adams and Trisha Kemp and myself, that this was only the beginning of healthcare and fintech. This is going to be an incredible runway. The tail ones were amazing. And we wanted to invest in a platform that focused on a talent function like we have now with five people in it. And we're going to be adding more with an incredible leader there. We wanted to bring in operators that were dedicated and focused these two areas of healthcare and fintech and have them be part of our team and really just everything that we could do to be the best at both of these sectors and go deep as investors and operators, we wanted to build. So it was a really exciting time and it still feels like a startup. We absolutely love it. So in that transition, which I guess is now seven, eight years ago, you don't often see both a spin out of that ilk, but then also a retention or at least a rolling over commonality of the brand to some extent, right? From Oak to Oak, HCFT. How did that play out? I think we felt that we were Oak. You know, people knew us as that. We, they knew us for a long time as that. We could have certainly many new brands have come into play. Many people rebranded that have spun out. But the existing entity, Oak Investment Partners, wasn't going to exist any longer. That entity, we all agreed, was going to die. We were going to roll off all the companies. And we were the surviving new entity, essentially, Oak HCFT, so you could call us Oak. But the healthcare and fintech team basically spun out, started a new entity, and we weren't going to name ourselves Oak Investment Partners because it was no longer Oak Investment Partners. So I'd love to dive a little bit into the opportunity sets of each of the sectors. So you mentioned in at least life sciences, you had this very fallow period until 2010. Not many products, but lots and lots of public companies. What's played out since? Well, on the life sciences side, we do technology-enabled solutions to pharma, employers, payers, providers, consumer. So those are all markets and customers that our companies that will address. In terms of 
directly investing into biotech and life sciences companies that take FDA risk. We won't do that. Now, certainly as of 2010, I would say 12, the life sciences industry came to life again. There've been extraordinary, you know, CRISPR. I mean, you can just, you know, list the number of innovations that have occurred that have made it incredibly exciting again. But we really felt like we were on this mission and there was an incredible amount of opportunity to improve the system. And the healthcare system is so broken that that was really our mission, not to be a life science investor. And we don't really love binary outcomes. And that's really what you, you have as a life science. It's either great or it's not. It doesn't work. And how about fintech? Fintech, it's so broadly defined. I mean, it starts with payments. It goes to insurance. It could be prop tech, e-commerce enablement. Fintech and payments is really embedded in every industry. And it's one of the reasons there was incredible convergence between healthcare and fintech, two highly regulated industries. But a third of what we do is the overlap between these two sectors. They're sometimes we call healthcare, but they're really payments companies in healthcare. I'd love to walk through effectively your investment process. How do you think about the top of the funnel? Well, we have these strategic themes. The top of it, we have incredible networks. We don't cold call. We're not like a TA or an insight, have a bank of kids that are they're trying to find deals. Just not the way it works. We, we may call cold call people because we've identified a strategic area and a few companies specifically in that area. But 90% of what we get is not books. We don't generally invest in companies that have come from investment bankers, but it's just proprietary deal flow. We've lived in these two sectors so long. Our network is just fast and deep, and we have great relationships. And this is such a relationship business that it just comes from that network. How do you balance today that same vector of the CEO being the key part of your investment thesis compared to all these interesting things and the trends in the industries? Well, CEO is number one. There are CEOs that we backed 15 years ago. We would never back now. And CEOs who had positive outcomes. But it's that much harder now. It's that much more competitive. The companies are growing that much faster. So CEOs just have to be better. And there's more demanded of them, which is one of the reasons we created this talent function, because the first thing we do is make sure that that individual is surrounded by the best team possible. And CEOs are growing out of teams every two years. So we're replacing half their management team because they can't scale fast enough with the companies. It's a different world we're living in than we were a decade ago, 15 years ago. Just more is expected of everyone. The reason we do early and growth, I think it's really important to think about it. 10, 15 years ago, a growth company was very unlikely to be dislocated by a new company. A five-year-old company being dislocated by a new company, probably not happening. Now, it happens all the time. So we really need to know what is going on with new seed stage companies in order to be the best growth investor. And some of our strategies and growth are organic and inorganic growth. So, and you're going to see that more and more. I mean, with these big fundraisers, people are consolidating industries and with the public markets declining and more challenges probably in the private market in terms of raising money, you're going to see companies that are really products and not platforms be sold and be incorporated into these platform companies that we hope to be backing. I'm curious what you've learned about characteristics of the most successful entrepreneurs you've worked with. Well, I would say confident, but not arrogant supremely confident because you you need to be confident to ask questions you need to be confident to hire better people than yourself so i think that that's really important but you also need a massive intellectual curiosity and confident enough to ask anyone and every questions, but then be a decider, right? You need to be incisive, like take the data, make the decision. Like you're the decision maker. It rests on you. I can give you all the advice in the world, but it's up to you. You're living with that decision at the end of the day. You have to be a Pied Piper. People have to be willing to follow. They have to get excited. I have to have to want to work with a person. This has to be fun. We're involved with a lot of companies. It's a job. It's really not just a job. This is something we, we live and breathe every day. And I think that if you're not enjoying working with somebody, then other people aren't going to enjoy working with this person, right? They're not going to be able to attract money. They're not going to be able to attract <laughs> talent, you know, that wears thin after a while. So all those go into the soup. How does your due diligence process work? It depends. If it's early, 
not much to look at. It's really, <laughs> you know, it's really just a judgment on people. But other than understanding the market and understanding what the competition will look like and how you fit in because the world's getting more complicated. With so many companies being funded in similar areas, you do really need to triangulate and understand what that looks like better than you used to. And then otherwise, we don't hire McKinsey. We don't hire Bain. We never hire a consultant. We know these companies. Like, we know what they do. We don't need to be told. I mean, we're, it's just, we live it every day. So that kind of like market research is so easy for us to do and customer research. And we, we know the buyers of these companies. We know the person in the particular department within United or Anthem, you know, to call them and just have a friendly off the record conversation. So I just think it's just so much easier to actually do due diligence things. And, and then obviously we've got all the financialing modeling we need. So once you go into a company, you've got your talent team, you've got operating partners, how have you figured out you can best leverage the talent that you have to help companies? We review it weekly. We go to market, for example, is one issue. When we had a couple of companies, we thought, could use some help there. And often there are usually companies that need help there, right? And we did hire like Mike Mateo is somebody who was head of growth at United and was president of what was Grand Rounds. And he's full-time helping three of our companies, you know, work on that issue. So it's more like what's the need? What needs do we see? Engineering talent. So we may end up with a function that's completely dedicated to finding engineering talent for our, it's such a crisis. There's just a talent war out there. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now back to the show. How do you think about the competitive landscape? So you mentioned you're still doing early stage, you're also doing growth. You're of real size, not mega size, but certainly not a minnow. It's all about positioning ourselves as this great assist and support system for great entrepreneurs. And that's whether you're starting out or whether you're pre-public. So it really hasn't been an issue because we feel like the financing side of it is like a commodity. We can model, we've done pipes, we've done every kind of transaction. That's the easy part. The harder part is identifying the right company in the right sector and then helping that entrepreneur be the best that they can be. So it's easy positioning because it's really first about the domain and your expertise and your relationships, your understanding and how much you can help somebody. And I think I've been involved with maybe 75 exits of companies through every means, strategic to financials, to IPOs, to SPACs. So we can also be incredibly helpful there. I'm kind of curious with all this money sloshing around, <laughs> how has that affected the deal environment, even with the relationships that you have in these sectors? I think it's just move price up. It's not that we're losing deals. It's just, what are you willing to pay? Early is, is all more expensive, but it's not that we, do we care if we paid 60 million or 90 million? You know, it's in the grand scheme of things, is this company worth could this be 500 million or a billion or 2 billion or 3 billion? You know, so we don't get hung up in the early stages in terms of valuation. And so I think we've probably moved a little earlier in growth and earlier and we've done a little bit more early stage. And we work with a lot of repeat entrepreneurs, so that mitigates losses. And uh, I don't worry about that 
But I do think we're in a reset mode right now. Public markets have corrected dramatically. They already had in healthcare before the end of the year. And now in fintech, you know, we've seen that in the last couple of weeks, pretty dramatic reset to the point of it's almost ridiculous. Like there's some public companies we want to buy <laughs> right now. So I do think that the pace will slow, but there's just, you know, in these environments, there is a lot of money still out there. There'll be a separation of wheat and chaff. And those that are truly exceptional companies, we just invested in a company, Paxos, a couple months ago, $2 billion valuation. We're already getting offers of more than twice that for that company. So for great companies, people still want to invest. People still want to buy them. That isn't going to change. I just think the filter is going to be much higher and there will be compression and more realism. What could we actually sell this for? What could we get liquidity on this for in a public offering? Or could it even be a public company at any point? So that's going to change. What are the themes you're most excited about today? In healthcare, it's really a payvider model is one of the things we're very, very interested in, in part because it has the most impact on cost reduction and improvement of quality of care. And a payvider could be a devoted, that's a Medicare Advantage plan that's incorporating a provider model so that they have their own devoted medical group, virtual primary care effectively for their own participants, members in the Medicare Advantage plan. And it's the merging of that where you're actually managing the care and taking the risk on the care. Or it could be a Village MD that comes at it from the inverse where Village MD is a primary care provider that's taking global cap risk, is taking risk on those patients and with an MA plan, Medicare Advantage plan, and saying, I will manage the margin of these people. I will day-to-day be responsible for these people's care, and I will provide all the infrastructure and data around doing that well. It's worked incredibly well. The numbers in terms of increased star ratings for MA plans that work with them, the quality of care they're delivering, and the reduction in cost of care is extraordinary. This is truly what should happen across America at every level. It's like you really should have doctors at risk for managing patients over the long term. That's what's going to have the most impact. The other thing, if just think about the staffing challenges, think about automation in healthcare. We found that whether it be payer or providers, hospital systems, they really didn't care three years ago about efficiency automation. They cared about revenue enhancement. But they really didn't care about efficiency. And they threw staff and bodies at everything. Three years later, staffing is a massive challenge for everyone. The cost of labor is going up dramatically. So they're very focused on automation. And we have companies like Olive and Syllable and Notable that where their products, the acceleration in their sales is impressive because all of a sudden, hospital systems pairs like, wow, I really need to focus on efficiency. I need to focus on automation. So I think that that is going to be a huge area for us. And I think it's, I've been waiting for this for 20 years, and it's now finally happening. I think that's exciting for the system because, you know, before there was a pushback also of, oh, you're automating people out of jobs. Now it's like even truck drivers. They were worried about truck drivers five years ago. AI is going to eliminate jobs for 8% of males in America. And they're like, no, we don't have enough truck drivers. <laughs> like, <laughs> We need automation. What are the other changes you see in healthcare coming out of COVID or hopefully coming out of COVID? Well, I think the other thing is just the virtualization of care is most important. There was a massive acceleration in virtualization. And everybody realized that you could actually visit with your doctor online. What that does is, if you think about the cost of care, so much of it, like a third of the cost of care is in the hospital. And most of the time, you don't need or want to be in the hospital or even a nursing home. Who wants to be in a nursing home after COVID, right? In institutional settings, it's the most dangerous place you could be. So you want to be in your home. Most people want to be in their home. They want to stay in their home and they want to have the care and support where they can stay in their home. And so virtualization, I just think you're not even going to recognize it. The automation, robotics, sensors, uh, just the care platforms about managing caregivers that are managing individuals in their home is going to be dramatically different. And so we're seeing much more investment going into home care and virtualization. That's just going to be extraordinary. Are there particular angles of types of companies playing into that that you're excited about? Every company we're involved with at some level, but Dispatch is actually providing 
they have cars that literally provide ER and hospital-based services in your home. They come to your house and it dramatically lowers the cost of care. It's fascinating. They're rolling out across the country. You've got Vesta and CareBridge, which are monitoring caregivers in the home and helping them and taking risk contracts to manage these caregivers who have been, think about it, talking about $12 an hour workers that are responsible for very sick people in the home with literally no support in the past. So if you bring a model around them and nobody's looked at the total cost of care with these patients and now that somebody's responsible for that risk and you then have a service to manage those people in the home and you keep them out of the hospital and you keep them more well, it's a winning financial model. I was curious if you flip over to the fintech side, you know, you mentioned Paxos, which of course leads into the whole crypto world. How are you thinking about crypto as it relates to DeFi and fintech? I think the COVID was as impactful for fintech as it was for healthcare. Certainly all these services that one would go to a bank for, would get title insurance, would show up at a lawyer's office, all those things were digitized. All of a sudden payments and services and mortgages were digitized and you were doing it from your bed. And so companies that we were invested, you know, doubled in sales during that period. It was just fascinating. And obviously COVID has been, the pandemic's been incredibly negative event for so many, education, mental health. But in terms of making progress in the use of tech for healthcare and fintech, it's been extraordinary and moved us five to 10 years faster than we would have. So from that perspective, there will be Lots of great opportunities that come out of that. On the crypto side, we haven't been investing in it as a currency. We haven't been investing in crypto per se, but we invest in digital asset infrastructure. So Paxos is digital asset infrastructure. It's what we do. We've been doing B2B enterprise software in effect. And if you think about digital asset infrastructure, that is basically just taking blockchain and applying it to different use cases. And we've been waiting for that for seven years. But now those use cases are here and we're seeing more and more companies where this digital asset infrastructure makes a ton of sense to use the blockchain for different opportunities and use cases. Paxos is effectively makes everybody Coinbase. They've got the fully regulated white labeled infrastructure. So any entity can be Coinbase take a step back. I know you spent plenty of time at the industry level, National Venture Capital Association. And as a longstanding woman in an industry that we've seen over the last couple of years has not had a sort of proportional share of women in the industry, I'd just love to hear your perspective on that issue and your history with it. Yeah, I would say a couple of things. After the first year or two, and I, they probably thought I was the founder's the secretary the first year walking around <laughs> with him. I don't know. There were so few women in the industry. But I was made a partner very early. I had agency. I never felt, in fact, I, I almost felt it was like a great filter because if an entrepreneur wanted to work with a woman, it was like a value system test. I never really thought about that way until later on. But I just had these really wonderful entrepreneurs I worked with. And I really never felt... I don't know. I just didn't feel discriminated against by entrepreneurs, by other VCs. I loved everybody I worked with and I loved the industry. And I was always wondering why there weren't more women in the industry. But I would say 30 years in, I was like, wow, like there's some fundamental <laughs> structural problem here that hasn't brought in women into the industry. And I do think not enough mentors and people didn't see it as a role. And, you know, and guys were getting into college and already talking about PE or VC and talking to their guy friends and talking to their friend who got out of school and what was the avenue. And women weren't doing that 10 years ago. And I do think that, I think there are two things. Call it the Me Too movement, but I also think it's the generational thing. Like this group of millennial women are empowered, are CEOs, are VCs. You know, it, there's just a difference in the nature of their empowerment. And I do think that it happens simultaneously. You're going to see more female CEOs at the same time you're seeing more VC, you know, VCs. And it's happening. We're still a fraction of the industry, but it's not like a just a token female here and there. They're coming into the industry and we've had much better luck in the last five years hiring women who are looking for these jobs. And we're seeking them out. We definitely had to go past the traditional channels, but they're seeking us out now. 
So it's very different. And I don't have to educate people and women on the industry. They understand it, know about it. And the next 30 years is going to be very different. I'm super excited about it. I'm kind of curious as you look out in what's obviously been a super hot area, it's just sort of the industry in general, where do you see the structure of the industry playing out and kind of the competitive differentiation of different types of firms? The industry is changing more now in the last two or three years than I think I've ever seen it. I think that's because one, particularly when you get into tech and fintech, it's global. Two, because some very large funds have been created and brand matters. And this is a generation where brand is really important. So I think that you have to have scale. It's very hard to succeed. And even I think seed funds are having trouble because firms that can do seed, startup, series A, B, C, and promise to be there with the entrepreneur all the way along have an advantage against an even a early stage seed fund. Don't get me wrong. There'll be great, wonderful seed funds that'll still do amazing work and be relevant. And it's one of the reasons we're getting bigger because we just feel like you have to have brand and you have to have market share. I mean, we were last year, we were 30% of the rounds that were done over a hundred million in our sectors were OKHCFT companies. And that is a pretty powerful stat. And those were all over billion dollar rounds in terms of valuation. And we want to have market share. If you don't have market share, it's harder to have impact. And the market share is like this network effect of being in these companies and that introduces you to other companies and entre- those entrepreneurs recommend you to other entrepreneurs and the VC. It's just this network effect is real. You have to maintain quality control. We don't want to be the index fund. I could name a few that have got that approach going. <laughs> but So we don't want that. And we'll stay focused on healthcare and fintech and we'll just be the best in those two sectors. That's our goal. So scale matters but you don't want to be too big. And then there's always, well, isn't size the enemy of performance? You don't want to be too small. Like when it really comes down to brass tacks, how did you decide how big to get and what felt right? I think we have kept every fund is about 20 to 25 companies. So that's been an important stat. We've gone from three people to 40 in the last eight, seven and a half years. We've been very, very careful. We have one person dedicated to hiring for Oak within the team in terms of filtering. And every person that we hire, we have to believe could ultimately be a partner. They may not all make it, but it's just very high bar in every person that walks in the door. So I think that as long as we're not creating 100 companies in a fund and we're just spraying money out there, and the bar is very high on each company that we're investing in, we're going to feel very good about, about our returns and the quality of what we're doing. Have you thought through the math of you still want it to be 20, 25 companies, fund sizes get bigger so you can scale? There's a math equation. Like, How did you solve that puzzle? Well, <laughs> I think the industry solved it for us because the size of a series B and C is three times what it was five <laughs> years ago. So we have to be bigger in order to get a lot size or be able to lead around. That became just a fact. Now, if you think about our prior life, we were investing out of multi-billion dollar funds. So we had the ability to write 50 to $100 million checks. So we're really just back to our roots in terms of that we are doing seed and early, but we're also able to write the larger checks. Now, you've been through a few cycles in the past, and last year was great. We know there's some stuff selling off right now. How do you play the game at a time that feels like, until very recently at least, things have been really, really good? Well, I'll give you an example from our Fund 3 and Fund 4. So Fund 4 was invested in 2021. Fund 3 was the year before. Fund 3, we could feel the momentum of acceleration in companies' growth as well as valuations. So we actually moved very quickly to invest in companies and we ended up with an extraordinary number of companies that raised money at much higher prices very shortly you know after we invested now fund 4 in 2021 we became more 
concerned about the valuation environment. So we certainly did some billion dollar plus valuations in great companies like Paxos, but we also got more value oriented. So we are not just momentum players. We are theme and trends. And we started more companies with repeat entrepreneurs and some new great entrepreneurs. And we dealt with the valuation issue. And we did, I would say, more growth that would be buildups. You buy into a platform and then you can see the writing on the wall that you're going to be able to then buy companies that aren't going to get funded, that are products. And so we have more organic and organic companies, I would say, in that portfolio. So we absolutely adjust what we're doing and get creative every cycle, every year. What are you most worried about? I suppose we worry about the little things all the time, but these two sectors have incredible opportunity. I feel like we're positioned very well. I just think you're always, it's such a competitive world that you're just always saying like we had brought in two LATAM advisors. We've now made two investments in Mexico. We're always like reevaluating when we should do things. So I worry it's just keeping your eye out and really never settling and never thinking you've got it. You're always learning and you have to just continue to reinvent. And it's part of the reasons like like using bigger funds and expanding because you need the resources to do that, to bring great operators on, to have venture partners, to have relationships, to have advisors in Latin America, to have a presence there, to have potentially have a presence in Europe. We're like the leading fintech growth investor in Israel. This takes capabilities. It's exciting. It's opportunity. It's like that just keeps you energized about what you're doing. How much of that feels like it becomes an arms race? Because yes, you want to have people in all these different geographies and you want to have people, but at the other extreme, that's what's created all the growth and assets. We will be small enough so that the managing partners and partners here will have a lot of touch points with all of these companies. And we're getting liquidity at a fairly rapid rate so that we won't have too many companies in our portfolio. I think honestly... Andreessen, General Callis, and done it great. You get as many people and as much money as they have, there's there's no way the senior people are involved with, with every company. And we are. And that will remain. I have a couple of closing questions I want to ask you. But before that, since we're both live in Connecticut and we're sitting in Connecticut, I have to ask, you have taken on by, I guess, election, this role of, quote unquote, the first lady of Connecticut. And would love to hear what your experience has been. It's certainly a fascinating inside window into government. And I think what's fascinating, what's wonderful to me is that I think citizens now appreciate the importance of good government and the role governors play. There's a very direct correlation between what a governor does that affects your life. And certainly think that my husband has great common sense and has been able to blend these different capabilities. So I think that's been interesting. And I, I do think like the perspective on Medicaid and Medicare, I mean, I'm a political science major from Stanford. So I'm actually interested in public policy. And it's one of the reasons that I get into healthcare. And it's one of the reasons that I get involved with FinTech. I mean, these are highly regulated industries where public policy matters a lot. And it matters in terms of how it impacts its citizenry. Have you had the opportunity to sort of do anything in that seat at a state level? There is no prescribed role. I think it's just being supportive of my husband. And obviously, he's become a healthcare expert the last two years. <laughs> and he never wanted, he couldn't spell healthcare before that. So not something he loved talking about, but now he loves talking about it. So we've got a lot in common. And I, I think that's been good. And one thing we have done is created a a seed angel capability, a tax credit for it. Connecticut Innovations is an amazing vehicle for investing in early stage companies. We've been an advocate. I've certainly helped them introduce them to entrepreneurs that, in terms of fostering the seed and, and entrepreneurial community ecosystem in Connecticut. That's something that's been fun and positive, hopefully, and hopefully people perceive it that way. It's more just, I think it's important. We've created a female-oriented seed group called Tidal River and gotten, and amazingly in three years, it's gotten organized and it has its own team that's now running it and it's gotten women in Connecticut involved. So it's great. It's fantastic. 
All right, Annie, before I let you go, I have a couple of closing questions for you. <laughs> what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Um, it's being outside in any form of activity, hiking, biking, tennis, golf, skiing, <laughs> as long as I can be outside doing something athletic. I love that. What's your most important daily habit? Getting up and exercising. <laughs> used to be running every day. Now I, I do a little less of that and yoga. And every day it's a different spinning, love soul cycle, miss soul cycle inside and having a green drink. What's your biggest pet peeve? I don't love people talking on cell phones loudly in trains or closed <laughs> spaces. <laughs> I'll choose that. How about on the investment side, your biggest investment pet peeve? I think it's bad people winning. I'm a social justice person, <laughs> sort of righteous, and maybe a little too righteous on that front. But I just, you know, they're entrepreneurs that are not completely ethical who win, and they're certainly, you know, VCs who I don't respect. Who, you know, so I think it's just, I like good people to win. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Well, I'd probably say the individual that introduced me to Oak in the first place, probably have to credit him. I mentioned Jerry Gallagher. He was a partner in retail who was very Midwestern like me and reinforced sort of the golden rule and it's all about people and old fashioned relationship. It's just what it's about at the end of the day, because this is a job that is, we've worked with entrepreneurs three, four, or five times. And it's been fun and it's been rewarding. So I think he's had a huge impact. And, and then I have two incredible partners right now and Andrew Adams and Trisha Kemp. And it's a joy every day to work with them. And it's just all about intellectual honesty and having fun and building a great team. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? Not starting my own firm sooner. Absolutely. Change is hard, right? And you've done something for a long time. I think it's hard and that absolutely should have done sooner. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I'd go back to the golden rule, probably, and kindness. I think they were very lovely, kind people and highly, highly ethical. Um, just treat people like you'd like to be treated. All right, great. Annie, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Mm, don't sweat the small stuff. You won't even remember <laughs> it later on. You know, there are only like a few pivotal things. I mean, obviously your kids are the most important thing. So, and everything seems important when they're younger. But I, I do think in the end, they're pivotal decisions you make. And otherwise, most things will work out in the wash. Annie, thanks so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Great to talk to you, Ted. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at CapitalAllocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. 